Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network and IBM TV, Big Mind Entertainment, and WCOM in Chapel Hill and Carborough. I'm L.A. Bachelor. We thank you so very much for joining us yet again. You could be doing anything else with your day. You decided to check in with us. We certainly appreciate you. Uh, don't forget, if you're on StreamYard, uh, you can make comments there. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook, you can do that uh, as well. Uh, my co-host and producer, Mark Lee, is here. And I want to bring in my guest. Always good to have him on. Uh, he is a professor, a junk professor in legislative affairs at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. He is Professor Quadricos Bernard Driscoll. And Professor, always good to have you on. I hope all is well with you and your family. Sir. How are you doing? Good. Very busy, I'm sure. So we get get right to it. Um, obviously, there was a lot of um, jubilation um, with the passing, the, the Juneteenth passing that uh, President Biden uh, passed. There was a lot of celebrations. There was always going to be celebrations anyway, Professor, as you know. But how significant was it for Biden to pass this? I mean, there, it may not be on a larger scale with jobs and they're still trying to fight for infrastructure, the voters' rights. We'll get to that. But how significant is this knowing the history of Juneteenth? Well, L.A., I don't think it was significant at all. Frankly. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, it, what, what puzzles me is how the Congress uh, that can't seem to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that can't seem to pass the George Floyd Policing Reform Act, that can't seem to even agree upon infrastructure in this country, all of a sudden is able, at least in the Senate, unanimously pass uh, this Juneteenth national holiday, and then only 14 Republicans in the House voted against it. I don't think it's significant at all. I think it's, at best, pacifying black folk in this country. Uh, yeah. And that's exactly what this bill was. It was saying that, hey, we're not going to move on any pieces of legislation that are significant, not just to black and brown people, but significant in the country, but yet, we will pass this national holiday, which commemorates, of course, uh, when black folk were told, not, not that slavery ended, when black folk were told in Galveston, Texas in 1865 of this, this holiday. So, you know, yes, Juneteenth, and let me be very clear in my remarks, Juneteenth has always been important as a celebratory factor for us as a people, and specifically for those uh, who are from Texas. I learned about Juneteenth when I was in grade school. So I always, and we always knew the history of Juneteenth. Yeah. My concern is what I echoed a moment ago. And then secondly, is that the meaning, the true meaning of Juneteenth, which I just echoed a moment ago, will be lost by the commercialization and mm. democratization of Juneteenth. So tomorrow, next year, we're going to see Juneteenth sales. We're going to oh, see oh, man. Uh, Juneteenth uh, breaks. And so we, it, it's lost. And, 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 and frankly, I think I've echoed this on your show as well. I don't find the significance of the bill because it's nothing more than symbolic, meaningless gestures that continue to be made to pacify black and brown people. And so pass me with these symbolic gestures and give me symbolic and give me meaningful legislation that actually moves the needle of justice forward. Give me reparations, right? Give me, close the wealth gap between blacks and whites in this country, 
right? So it's, it's Juneteenth and reparations. It's Juneteenth and educating our children and, and others about the history of racism in this country. It's Juneteenth and ensuring that those who have affordable access to housing can have it. It's Juneteenth and ensuring that black farmers get the reparations they need. It's both and. It's not either or. So I I am not necessarily, I was not necessarily jumping up and down, for lack of a better term, about uh, the national federal holiday celebrating Juneteenth. Which is why I, I said, you know, when you look at what's on the table, you know, um, conservatives, Republicans want to pacify, so they throw a bone, like you're saying, like this this, this passing, um, but they won't look at the John Lewis bill, the George Floyd bill. And and to your point, you look. all you got to do is look at Dr. King's uh, holiday and you got a dr king holiday sale going on the car salesman uh, selling cars on dr king day and people having dr king celebration so and i know black folks that get upset professor where they're like well you know it is it may be a situation where you can look at it like we're taking advantage of the holiday for someone historic uh like dr king and now with juneteenth um but they're but black businesses are making money. And I don't know how you split that, uh, Professor, um, when you look at it, because you're only making really, you're making money for one day, and essentially, you know? And so it's, is, it, is it really that important to sort of monetize, like you said, and, and exploit a Dr. King holiday and exploit a Juneteenth um Holiday. Right. The, the meaning will certainly be lost in the in the years to come, and, and then that is that is my overarching. It was not my overarching concern, but it is one of the concerns. That aside, let's not talk about how this will potentially help black business. Let's talk about closing the wealth gap and ensuring that there's economic equity for for black and brown people, and to which this federal holiday does none of that. So I think we need to be very clear here on the priorities. I think we need to be very clear that this was nothing more than what continues to happen with regard to symbolic gestures that Congress or even this administration, let me say this, thus far, this administration continues to pass to do. I am not enthused, and I'm not sure if you're going to talk about this, but the Biden administration's what I'm calling a war on gun violence, which will disproportionately, I think, target black and brown people. So I, I'm not necessarily enthused about this national federal holiday that black people have always and will continue to celebrate. If you're just joining us, <clears throat> excuse me, we're uh, speaking with our good friend, Professor Quadrico Bernard Driscoll, a junk professor uh, in legislative affairs at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University here on the Bastion News radio show, uh, WCOM, IBM TV and Big uh, Mind Entertainment and the Basket News Radio Network. Professor, to your point, um, it, it, and I'm going to get to uh, those, those laws and to what you said in terms of the administration with this attack on gun violence, which, again, if they really want to look at some stuff like gun, uh, um, the George Floyd bill, uh, there would be something passed there. But you brought up a point that was the focus of going off Juneteenth, the fact that, okay, now it's a pacifying effect. But if, if Congress and this administration is going to pass something along those lines, then this should be an awareness, if they're really serious, and to your point, the pacification of it, is 
if they're really going to be serious about it, then bring forth the economic um, equity, um, bring forth the jobs, bring forth um, the education, bring forth the real housing, the real building of black economics and black businesses and where we were, whether it be Tulsa, we talked about the Tulsa massacre, Juneteenth or anywhere else, you know, Harlem and all these other places where it was black Wall Street and black business. If you're really serious about it, then we need to spin off of that and put pressure on them and they need to come through. So having said that, how do we do that? What do we do to, to, to use this as a springboard to get economic um, education, housing, and other equality? I think we're starting to see some of that with uh, millennials and with Generation Z about taking matters, particularly on the economic front, into our own, our own hands. I think this, this new era of the gig economy has opened uh, our eyes up to entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, gone are the days, particularly, I think, again, in my generation and even younger, where you go to school, you get credentialed and degreed, and you go work for a company for a number of years, and you sort of climb that corporate ladder. We're, we're not seeing that in this current generation. This current generation has figured out how to utilize and to, to make profits, really, of the gig economy. So I think that we have to utilize that. I think we have to be entrepreneurial in our efforts. I think that we have to become smarter about investments, uh, not just um, housing stock, as we have been more accustomed to, or even life insurance. But I think we have to become smarter about what financial savviness and future looks like. I think we have to do a lot of the work on our own rather than continuously asking the government for that. We have to be smart about investing our dollars within our own communities, supporting black and brown and small businesses, and ensuring that those black and brown businesses are also on the up and up, if you will, with mm -hmm. regard to federal grants, federal loan programs. We know that the PPE, given the global pandemic that has happened, a number of black and brown and small businesses did not have access to uh, the PPP because of they just weren't aware. So we have to do the work that is required for us to make sure that we know what's coming down the pipe in terms of grants and loans and forgiveness programs coming from the federal government. We have to invest in our community, and we have to educate our children about what investments comprehensively looks like for our financial welfare. That's going to be the only means of survival. And I don't think that we can continue to ask the government to do this for us. I, I agree, and especially when you look at, um, uh, you know, investing, um, having stocks, investing in our future. I, we, we have to not be so short-sighted and be, you know, lo looking at the bigger picture, especially when you have children, especially when, um, you know, it, it's, it's something as simple as just, making sure that you have the financial investments and portfolio to be able to go out and do those different things um, for your family and for your communities. Uh, professor, I'm going to go to my uh, co-host, Mark Lee, and he has some questions for you. Well, it looks like he uh, disappeared, but he's coming back. So there you go. There you go. Uh, professor uh, Driscoll, glad to hear you. Glad to meet you and all of that. Definitely glad to engage in a conversation with you. As I was telling uh, L.A. Bachelor. One of the things on this network, I've had a gentleman from 
um, originally from Russia, but now lives in Canada. So that definitely tells you that he's part of the European American uh, background and everything. But he has been slamming hard critical race theory. And I would love to hear your thoughts about this and whether it's something that we should be proponents of or not proponents of, because he's definitely been very harsh on it. I'm actually of the opinion that if we're going to study history, we're going to even study our economics, we need to understand the context from which we came. And I think that that's where what critical race theory is about. But I was just wondering your thoughts, because I do know that Sasha Starr, who is an internationally renowned chess person, is very harsh on critical race theory. And you may be as well. I'd just love to hear your thoughts about this whole theory and whether it's something we should even be pushing. Well, let, let me just say this. Oh, there you uh, go. Can you still hear me? Yes, I hear you now. You were saying oh. about critical race theory. First off, a lot of people don't understand critical race theory. I mean, I know that it's in the national ether right now. A lot of people uh, across the aisle, across race and gender are talking about it. A lot of people, including those of us who are black, do not understand critical race theory. Okay, that's the first thing. So I think that we need to, to, to truly, and I think the general, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff echoed this uh, on the Hill this week, actually, in terms of the true understanding of critical race theory, what that means, and what it looks like for the history of our country. We also need to understand it first as a theory. That's uh, Derek Bell, who is known as the chief uh, originator of critical race theory, start the, the concept, the term, when you look at it. I actually teach critical race theory in one of my classes. So until people, and I'm not going to try to, I mean, I could if you would like me, but I'm not going to try to give the overarching overview of critical race theory. But what I will suggest is that people need to learn, people need to understand the theory behind it. And until people can understand that, then we can't even begin to have a conversation about it. And, and, and that's quite frankly it. No, I definitely understand. And like I said, I tried to give him a little bit of it because, and maybe you disagree, but it seems to me that part of it, and I do know that it's a much complex theory and everything, but part of it is us understanding how history relate to what is going on now. And I think that that's part of what he wasn't even buying into. But if I'm understanding critical race theory, part of the theory is that we have to understand our history in order to understand where we are in the present and where we're going. Is, is that a correct assessment on my part? Because that's what I tried to explain to him, and I don't know if he even bought into that. But it, it, And that may be a simplistic way of describing it, but am I correct in using that concept that part of what it is about is that in order to us to even address the larger issues, whether it's economics, whether it's the amount of us that are in the prison system or a number of other things, we have to understand it in a historical context. That's a very minute part of critical race theory, right? Um, the, the larger, and, and, and if I could, and, and, and you, you made this point, it, it's, it's much more complex, right? You, you can't, you, you need true academics. I don't claim to be a race theorist myself although I, I do teach race and politics, but the summation of critical race theory is about hegemony. It is about the power construct around the examination of race and law. Mm -hmm. right? it, it's about how the systematic structures or institutional structures continue to lend itself towards one group of people being oppressed and another group of people being the oppressors, okay? So it, it's framed in 
in several other theories, such as critical legal studies, it's, it's framed within intersectionality. Uh, it's framed within the law. It's, it's framed within a critique on liberalism. It's, it's framed within uh, a concept of revisionist storytelling or intersectional theory. It's framed within, and I'll use another big word here, um, epistemological frameworks at race neutrality, uh, essentialism versus anti-essentialism. And so until we understand all of these theories, and, and sorry for being too uber academic here, but it, it really does call for academics to explain in a, in a very lay term what it looks like and what it is. So to your question, yes, it does call for us looking at history, but that's a very small aspect of critical race theory. Because to your, to your point, you have to look at the history of racism and the legalization of race and the legalization of the systematic and institutional structures that have been in place over time by the law, right, that have led to certain groups being oppressed versus other groups, if that makes any sense. So critical race theory teaches that racism systematic racism has been institutionalized and legalized over a number of years. It has nothing to do with teaching racism. It has nothing to do with teaching that whites are inherently racist. Well, that's not necessarily completely true, but that could be true depending on what theorists you're talking to. <laughs> but but it, so it's a part of that. And, and people, politicians particularly, and, and, and a lot of TV talk are just sort of throwing the term without any full, real understanding of what it means. All right? It's like me trying to explain a theological concept to people who have opinions about it, but who actually didn't study theology to even have an intellectual conversation about it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that LA's definitely got a lot of questions along this whole concept, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And then I'm going to turn it back over to LA. But one of the other things I was curious about that I've been having conversations around has been this whole concept, and you've talked about both black and brown people, around us sometimes being divided in our agendas. Because like I said, there have been folks that have even tried to push the fact of maybe the Asian population not being, uh, us not being as friendly toward the Asian population, or us not being as concerned about what is going on in Latin America with the borders and all of that. But it seems to me that all of these are issues that need to be addressed, and we don't need to be pitting each other against everybody. But it does seem like some of the power structures are doing that age-old argument of divide and conquer. So like I said, and I was just wondering your thoughts about that, because there are so many issues that are pertinent both to the African-American community, our community, but also some of them are pertinent to the Latin American community, and then there are some that are more pertinent toward their community, like what's going on at the borders. And it's right, you're, you're absolutely right. It, has, it is the age-old story of hegemony, those in power who seek to maintain their power. We have to remember, there was a book I read once upon a time when the Irish became white. Right. Mm -hmm. when, when Irish and the Italians first came to this country, they were not considered white. Uh, Jews, same, same sort of uh, the same narrative that existed there. And so, yes, there, there is and, and continues to be this divide that uh, certain power structures try to ensure that people of color, generally speaking, which includes Asian-Americans, uh, Latino-Americans, Black-Americans, and other Native Americans, there's this try to divide. 
I have long said I think we need to work together because the reality is we are all in this struggle together, right? When you look at disparities with regard to education, when you look at disparities regarding health, when you look at disparities regarding economic access, uh, it is by and large people of color, which is why sociologists have come up with this very broad term of people of color. I don't necessarily like it all the time, but I understand why they came up with it because it, it does include this, this group, this racial minority group that over time do not have and have not had the same access and the same rights that the majority race, i.e. white people, have had, right? And so rather than saying, well, this is a, a black issue, this is a Latin issue, this is an Asian issue, I've said this publicly with my, my Latino uh, and my Asian brothers and sisters as well, that we need to work comprehensively and we need to work together, right, on these issues. And quite frankly, I think it is in, in our best interest to work collaboratively with these groups anyway, because we, with regard to both Asian Americans and Latin Americans, African Americans, by the numbers, we're not there, right? So. When you look at population size in this country, the growing racial minority is that of Asian Americans in this country. Mm -hmm. And we need to be very cognizant of that. And Latinos are, I think, at 18 percent. African Americans are still at 13 percent. And Asian Americans in this country are growing by rapid rates. Presently, they hover around 6 to 7 percent, but that's growing increasingly. So when we begin to think about strategy and when we begin to think about policy, it is in our best interest, fundamentally, to work with other people of color. You know, I, I, would, I would say this, and I agree with what you're saying, Professor, when you think about um, having allies, essentially, um, people of color. Um, we just have to, I guess, though, as an African-American, there are still some things that overwhelmingly negatively happen to us than others people of color. Uh, maybe with our Latino and Latina sisters and brothers would, would be lumped into that as well in terms of driving and, and being stopped and something fatally happening to someone that's Mexican or, or Spanish or, or black as opposed to someone who might be Asian or some other ethnic group. Still a person of color, but something different. So I, I agree that we need to we're all in this kind of boat together, so we better have all the, especially African-Americans, we better have all the allies we can to push our agenda, to push the political agenda. And speaking of that to you, Professor, you mentioned about this war on, on gun violence and, and how it's affecting us. Kind of elaborate, if you can, surely on, on that in terms of how the Biden administration is handling this. Right, right. Well, before I get there, Ellie, I just you know want to note you mentioned the the gun violence. So I agree with your point that there are issues that disproportionately affect African Americans a lot more than it does Latinos or, or Asians. But we forget that Asian American, excuse me, Latino Americans in this country are disproportionately killed by the police at a higher rate than African Americans. But that is left out of the media, right? And you don't have to take my word. Do the research. Right. Right. Latinos are disproportionately killed. And, and, and in many respects, I think because they are undocumented illegal immigrants, and so they just kill them at random, right, versus us. The attention, however, is on black people who are being killed by the police. And, and, and let's be clear, that's a very serious problem. But disproportionately, it is affecting more Latinos than it is African Americans. So I just want to note that because we also don't hear that in the media. But when we look at the numbers, right, the numbers speak otherwise. 
And it pro- yeah. and they probably don't fight speak up as much because in some cases they are undocumented. So they don't <laughs> want to, you know, put themselves out there and, and be deported. So to your point, but go ahead. Right. Right. So with regard to this issue of gun violence, we know that um, the president uh, on yesterday made this, uh, along with the Attorney General Garland, about uh, ending gun violence in the country. And I am really suspicious and and kind of uh, skeptical of his uh, plan and his initiative, uh, because I remember, even though I was a young lad at the time, his comments with regard to the three strikes and your outlaw when he made on as a senator. Uh, I am not convinced uh, that this would bring about the type of reform that he is seeking to bring about in, in this country. I think although he will give more policing forces resources, for community policing, um, although he, he talked about gun violence prevention. I, I'm just, again, a little skeptical on how all of this will play out. Well, lay out, lay out what, you, what he said and why you're skeptical, what his plan is and why you're skeptical. So his plan is um, a couple of things. It's, it's first to not necessarily defund the police, which we know was a part of the narrative of a lot of uh, progressives um, on a lot of left progressives. Um, he actually plans to give more money to the police uh, in terms of in the hopes of policing reform. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, he plans to put a lot of money in terms of uh, gun prevention, gun, yeah, gun prevention, and, and closing a lot of the the loophole gaps uh, that happen in, in gun shows, which I would say was an issue that happened during uh, Sandy Hook uh, when two senators tried to do it then. Uh, Biden also wants to push back on this this notion or, or put more resources, I should say into mental health prevention. Um, and there are some other aspects of the bill that I haven't quite fully read. I, I did listen to the address yesterday, but all of that, given what he has, what he has said, and again, I still have some more reading to do, it, it really just gives me pause. Because one thing that I do know is when you look at the number of the violence, um, it, it's happening by and large, and he echoed this in our communities. Uh, but I also think that when it comes to this comprehensive gun legislation to close certain gaps, to close certain loopholes, and to go after those who are putting illegal guns, as he echoed, into the streets, well, given the history of policing in this country and given our most recent history, I, I quite frankly think they're going to target more black and brown people. So I'm, I'm not, there in my mind, at the very least, there is a disconnect between what he Expouses what he echoes, what he wants to happen, and actually what will happen, and that's my concern. That is why it it gives me considerable pause on uh, this initiative. That's the first thing. Secondly, Sandy Hook, right? My mind goes back to Sandy Hook. There were Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania and, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia who wanted to close the gun show loophole. 
very basic, gancho lupo. And, and forgive me for saying this, but if when white children die and the Congress did nothing, I, I'm not convinced that there is an appetite now. If they couldn't get it done then, when, when white children right, uh, in this country perished at the hands of, of gun violence, then what is the appetite? I question what is the appetite to get something done now. I know that the NRA it, it, it has it is not the robust organization that it once was, but I'm not convinced that there is an appetite amongst members of Congress to actually pass something with regard to gun violence reform. I mean, hell, they can't even agree on something as basic and as non-controversial as infrastructure in this country, <laughs> as roads and bridges that we all need. So how then can they agree upon gun violence prevention or gun violence legislation? I'm just not sure. You know, preach. You are a reverend, so preach, uh, preach on with that, uh, uh, professor. <laughs> you know, um, two points you made. Number number one, I'm very leery with more policing, even community policing. I've talked to black police chiefs and and law enforcement all all over, and you know, you heard that term of defund the police and all of those things. But I don't know in black and brown communities. We're, we're already apprehensive. Me, myself, come from the hood. Uh, we, we didn't like the police. They come in and harass us all the time. So you bring in more in where in these communities where they're a little concerned from the start. I don't know if more bodies makes more sense rather than some form of intelligence or some form of different reform in the policing that's going to help our communities. And number two, I've said even before um, he was on the trail as um, candidate Biden, that people need to go back. He was on board with the Clinton three strikes you're out bill. He was on board with that way back when. So I, I'm with you. It's a wait and see type thing for me. I'm, I'm concerned right. about that. Right. Um, right. And to your point, third, listen, not only Sandy Hook's in my home uh, state of Connecticut, not only white kids are killed, Congress been shot and nothing's happened. So what? <laughs> so I don't even know where they go with that. Like, if, if you can't get it done when your own colleagues get shot. And it was a Republican, and the, the Republican, the congressman from Louisiana, he's like, well, it's not, he, he made all this stuff. You were shot on a baseball field. That's correct, right. <laughs> and nothing gets done. So with that being said, it, it's a wait and see there. Uh, we'll see with that. Is anything going to happen with the George Floyd uh, bill and, and the uh, Congressman Lewis uh, voting rights bill, a bill that's been watered down? Uh, they're, they're more concerned, the media especially, more concerned with the filibuster. Nobody really wants to put pressure there. You see what's happening in Georgia and all these places where they're taking all these, these names off the ballot. People, it's a fundamental right, I feel. Whether it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, you should be able to have real access and opportunities to vote in this country. If people want to vote, if you take it away, what kind of democracy do we have? So those two, those bills, are they really going to get passed? If so, will they have a, a even more watered down effect? We hadn't even talked about infrastructure. Right. So, you know, the, the real answer to your question is, Probably not. <laughs> uh, probably not. If if the the Democrats do not agree to 
quite frankly, change the filibuster. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that they should. The George Ford Policing Act, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic about, cautiously optimistic about, and I, I'll tell you why. Um, given, given my role, I, I understand that there are some behind-the-scenes conversations that are, taking a, that are taking place away from the media uh, that, that Senator Tim Scott from the Republican, Black Republican from South Carolina has helped to lead along with Cory Booker and from the senator from New Jersey, along with uh, Representative Karen Bass, um, the uh, member of Congress from California, and some other um, members of Congress, both Republican and Democrat. They're having uh, these, again, backroom conversations to really iron out the details with regard to uh, policing reform in this country. And again, those conversations are happening away from the media. So I am cautiously optimistic that something with regard to policing might be introduced soon. Um, again, the, the, the real amalgamaniac here is Mitch McConnell. I mean, that, we already know that. And so he's going to be, I think, the roadblock, even if something that is tremendously bipartisan is, is introduced. Uh, on voting rights, we have already seen that the Republicans, particularly in the Senate, have um, said, quite frankly, no to it. Um, and so I, I'm not sure about what voting rights looks like in this country. Uh, Joe Manchin, I, and I wrote an article in, in The Hill that essentially said that Democrats need to work with Joe Manchin. And, and, and that proved my point this past week when Joe Manchin said, when he talked to Chuck Schumer, and he said, I am now willing to work out some sort of deal when it comes to voting rights in this country. Uh, that remains to be seen whether or not we're going to have some type of voting reform in this country nationally. And, and I think, you know, and I, and I have also said this publicly, and I've been very critical of Democrats. If this was the Republicans, they would say to hell with it and do what they need to do to stop or to support any legislation right. they want to. Thank Democrats you. continuously and always want to sort of work together work with the other side of the aisle. And I, trust me, I'm a lobbyist. I am for bipartisanship. But at some point, there comes a time when you're, say, you're going to say to hell with it. We're going to do what we need to do because for so long we have been trying to work with you all and you all have been obstructors in this process. And so we're just going to pass whatever the hell we feel like passing and needs to without your support or not. Yeah. Democrats have been functioning to their credit, I suppose, and operating under some good to try to do good, but getting nowhere. If you're going to do good, when you're, you're perhaps going to have to be a little bit more theological, if I could use that term, and just say the hell with the consequences. We're going to do what we need to do to get meaningful legislation in this country. Because right now, Republicans are slated to win the majority in the House as well as in the Senate. So you might as well go out with a bang. And that, I've always said, Professor, we've said on the show, you know, Democrats play checkers, Republicans play chess. It, right. it, they, they're always, you know, 2000, uh, 2022 is around the, the corner. Right. You, if you're really concerned about doing the right thing, I call it, you got to strong arm it. I mean, George Bush said, we're going to Iraq. I, I don't really care what you say. We're going, right. you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and, and they do that. Republicans, you're right. Uh, I just, final question, I know you got to go, and Mark may have a question. Who is Joe Manchin? All of a sudden, you know, he, you know, I've been saying about this guy, he needs to just 
just put the R in front of you or in back or wherever you want to put it. You are not a Democrat. We know that. That's my opinion. But it, he's he's so he's so enamored with this voting rights and stuff, and he's not really this infrastructure thing. You are, you represent one of the poorest states in the country. Where's the West Virginians? that want him to do the right thing. Where are they speaking out? I mean, I don't know if there's the poorest state, but you know, I mean, some of the people in Appalachia there, it's it's a very, I visit there and covering football, so it's a very, very downtrodden type of uh, a state. I mean, just to be honest about it. And so who is this guy? Is he really representing his, his state the right way? And where are these West Virginians sort of speaking up especially when it comes to jobs uh and you get those jobs through, through infrastructure building the roads and and the the potholes and everything in these 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 states I, I just don't understand how he came on the scene like this um uh and and how west virginians don't seem to be vocal about it right well you know la let me sum up my my it permit me to rise above humility and sum up my article right so <laughs> joe manchin is is arguably one of the most powerful men in washington he's a senior democratic senator from west virginia mm-hmm. joe manchin has always been a moderate centrist swing voter so this is nothing new right what, what makes joe manchin particularly important now is because of who he has always been which is a moderate swing voter centrist Democrat from West Virginia, uh, who, quite frankly, is, is representing uh, West Virginia, uh, because West Virginia was a state that overwhelmingly voted for the former president. I, I mean, he, Trump carried West Virginia by like 40 points, right? So Democrats, and I've argued this, have to understand who they have at their disposal. Here's a centrist, independent, sort of moderate Democrat. This, in my mind, can translate actually into a win. Rather than protesting him, rather than being antagonistic towards Joe Manchin, I think the Democratic Party and Schumer has finally realized this, needs to work with Joe Manchin to secure voting rights, which, again, what we saw this week. Let's be very clear. Joe Manchin has voted with his party 80% of the time since he has been in Congress, at least dating back to the 112th Congress. He voted for all of Biden's nominees. So Manchin really needs, uh, excuse me, Joe Manchin doesn't need necessarily the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party needs Joe Manchin, right? That's we, true. Democrats but, are hanging on by a thread. They're only, we only have, a, Democrats only have a majority by four votes in in the House, right? So Manchin is this critical piece of this larger party because I believe both parties in many respects are going towards polar opposites, going to the extremes. We see extremism certainly on the Republicanism, which looks like white nationalism, and we see extremism on the Democratic side, which is more of the leftist progressive narrative, right? Gone are the days of the Blue Dog Caucus although it still exists, gone are the days of liberal Republicans, maybe Susan Collins, right? Gone are those days. And so we need individuals like a Mitt Romney, a Susan Collins, and a Joe Manchin. And we need them on both sides of the aisle. And that's why I think Joe Manchin is critical to the success and to a lot of legislation that is moving forward. 
he is, and he might seem like he's obstructing, because he is, rightfully so, because of the state he represents, but this isn't new. He's always been like this, and I think we have to understand that, and I think we have to work with him, and again, I think Schumer did that by coming to an agreement when he said, now I'm beginning to think about ending the filibuster so that we can have voting rights legislation in this country. Well, uh, I... I understand what you're saying, um, but I don't remember any Democrats in the Congress or the Senate siding with these folks, these crazy people in, on January 6th. So if you have anybody that's going to be moderate, it's usually to the Democratic side rather than the Republican. But to, to the point of West Virginia, if they are overwhelmingly voting for that idiot that was here before that, then that's a problem. That then you're voting against your own best interest. If you voted for that idiot that didn't change your life, right? Then then something's wrong in West Virginia. And it's people that vote for their own best interest that vote against Obamacare and everything else because it's Obamacare is, is really called the Affordable Health Care Act, which probably helps so many people, which is very popular even in places like West Virginia. But they'll vote against it because it's called Obamacare because it was a black president. They vote against their own best interest, and that's what I see in West Virginia. You vote, yeah, okay, you could overwhelmingly vote for the guy who wants to grab women by their private parts and shoot people on Fifth Avenue. That's fine, right? And then you get what you deserve. And so if he represents that, then that's an issue. Um, and the point is, yeah, I know, I've known who Joe Manchin is, as up to your point. I've known he's always been that way, but 80% is like being the, the world's tallest midget. If you're a real Democrat, you're going to vote more than 80%. And I'm not saying that it's what he's, what he's voting for would, would not be if you examine the right thing to do to have some balance. But to your point way back, there is no middle. There is no middle. There is no bipartisan. Name a big bill that's been passed bipartisan in, in the last 10, 20 years in this country. I mean, by real bipartisan, not something on China like they did overwhelmingly. They voted against, you know, China stealing trade secrets and stuff. That That's nice, you know, for security. I get that. But real bipartisanship. So Joe Manchin can stay in the middle all day. But at the end of the day, where's the middle? There is no middle. This, to your point, if it's an extreme left, extreme right, over here, everybody's over here in their corners, he's just the man in the middle. And I just think it's more or less for him wanting to be Joe Manchin on the scene to run for president or whatever he's going to do rather than Joe Manchin trying to get some things done. And I don't think he's really been trying to get anything done really in his career. Well, he's well, been that stepping in the middle. Sometimes the middle means that you're passive aggressive. You want to stand on the fence because you're too afraid to go left or right. You just want to stay in your little corner. And, well, you're right. Well, you're right, too. I mean, sometimes the middle means that as well. Well, let me push back on you there, L.A., because I, I think that we have lost so much of the middle in this country, the, the silent majority, as, as Nixon <laughs> once uh, said. The middle for me represents those who actually agree on both sides or understands the other perspective who wants to get things done. 80% is not a small number. I mean, again, the man voted with his party 80% of the time. I think we have gotten to a place in our political system where it's, well, if you're not voting for what with us, 
100% of the time, well, then you're not real. I disagree with that notion. I think you can be a Republican and vote with your party 75% of the time. I think you could be a Democrat and vote with your party 80% of the time. Again, we need those people who think independently versus what their parties are espousing. And if, if it wasn't for a John McCain, we would not have the Affordable Care Act. Right. So I think we need to be very clear on that. If it wasn't John McCain putting his thumbs down, we would not have the Affordable Care Act. He voted against his party all in that respect, although he, what, 70, 80 percent of the time voted with his party. So I think we have to understand the use of a centrist Republican or a centrist Democrat, and we cannot throw them away or bash them because they are not doing the bidding all of the time for whatever parties they represent. I think that is the problem in this country, and I think it, is, it has been centrist, quite frankly. Mitt Romney is another one that comes to mind. Bill Cassidy is another one that comes to mind, particularly with the whole January 6th events, who are Republicans who stood up to their parties and said, this is not right. I am voting not what's in the best interest of my party, but I am voting what's in the best interest of my country. And so I think that independent-minded Democrats or Republicans have a role to play in our body politic. But unfortunately, given our current ethos, we are so divided that it's, if you're not voting with us 100% of the time, then you're not a real Republican or a real Democrat, and you need to go sit down somewhere. I just well, it's not only way. just a percentage. It's about when you vote. He, if you don't – even if you know, just like I criticized President Obama about the affordable health, he should have asked for um, – uh, he should have went further. But he didn't because he wanted to, like you said, Democrats want to compromise all the time. Sometimes you got to do what's right and, and take what's going to happen for the sake of doing what's right. You have to put it out there. Then you make the case, well, listen, I wanted this huge plan for the uh, Affordable Health Care Act, but this side voted against it. And here's why. You make your case, but you have to push the envelope. Sometimes, so in, this, in the case of impeaching the president, maybe it wasn't going to happen that they didn't have the vote. But from a standpoint of sending a clear message to not just this man, but presidents after him, Joe Manchin and all of them should have voted for it. And Mitt Romney, by the way, voted up for one thing and down for the other. So, I mean, it's not just percentage. It's about the crucial time when you, you say you stand as a politician uh, for the American people, that you make the conscious moral vote. So it's not just the 80%. It's when you vote and you vote your conscience and you vote for the American people, not hide in the middle or vote against something that you know is wrong. There's no way anybody, anyone, except those who supported that man before Joe Biden, that should not have voted for him, that should have voted for him to be impeached. I don't care if he didn't, wasn't going to get impeached or not. If you really stand against this man, you impeach him. You vote up to impeach him. That's the right thing to do. And if, you, if it costs you politically, if you're going to stand on this talking point stuff all the time, if it costs you and you, you really believe in what you, then so be it. Just, just like you said, Democrats need to say the hell with Republicans. I'm just going to do what we need to do and just suffer the consequences. It's no different collectively or individually for you to do that. Look, and, and Manchin voted to impeach Trump. Uh, he, there were others. Again, I, I simply, I think that 
to your point, it is not necessarily about percentage. I think at those crit- critical and crucial votes, I think those leaders vote their conscience. I think they vote what's in their, what's in their own political best interest. Right. But there are times in which I have seen these centrist, moderate Republicans and Democrats vote not only what's in their own best interest, uh, but also what's in the best interest of the country. And I think that we need to continue to have a, a moderate centrist members on both sides of the aisle. It's good for the body of politics. Well, it just we we need to find them because, like I said, at this we point, have one. Joe Manchin, you got he's one. I mean, he's another. Uh, he's Professor and L.A. One of the things I was curious about, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, because you definitely have that political background, Professor Driscoll, and everything. Is that I think part of the reason that Joe Manchin is so popular in West Virginia is because that is one of those states that had a severe industry that had a drastic decline. I mean, coal mining was very much part of their history, was part of what they were going through, and of course that has been steadily declining through the history of time and everything over these last several years and decades and everything. I think that you could put West Virginia in the same kind of philosophy as what's been going on in Detroit with the car industry and things of that nature. So I think that sometimes it's those economic issues that push the narrative in terms of why people vote. I know LA was saying that people are not going, they're, they're voting against their best interest, but in their mind, they're thinking that it's somebody that's going to protect those industries or somehow give them other kinds of jobs, maybe train them in technology and other fields and all of that. So I think that that's part of what the narrative is because actually one of our other hosts of another show that happens on the IBM network is actually from West Virginia and actually knows Mr. Manchin. And he, like you, paints him as a, progressive and as somewhat of a definite a centrist, but he says that part of what he is about is about some of the technology things and trying to bring some of that into the West Virginia fold, just like Steve Rao, who is the gentleman I'm talking about, is trying to bring it into Morrisville, North Carolina and all of that. And he is also of the same kind of background because I think that they are both having some of the um, Indian roots, like from India mm-hmm. and the Asian roots and all of that. So definitely it does seem to me that that's part of what's going on is that there's some uh, philosophy going on that they're trying to bring in new industry because a lot of these states like West Virginia, like um, Detroit, which is actually a city, of course, but a lot of these places are places where we've seen tremendous industries decline. We can say the same thing about parts of Louisiana. Yeah, I just think it's right. Right. But you can't have it both ways. You can't vote for a guy who, um, it just doesn't jive. If, if if you're saying Joe Manchin is there to represent the people, to bring jobs and this and that, but then the people are voting for this other guy, it just doesn't mix. It doesn't make well, any Ella, sense. You're trying to get into the psyche of the voters of West Virginia or white, poor, rural voters. We, I mean, we, we've always known that white, rural, or, or sometimes right poor people vote against their self-interest. We, we well, then, that's a, then there, there you go. That, that's all. I yeah, didn't say it. Yeah, I, I didn't about, say it. You said it. That's, what, I, that's about, what I was talking about. That's we're what talking, talking about, about a policymaker, an elected official who is a Democrat, right, from a very conservative state, to Mark's point, who straddles the fence, A, in his own political best interest, I mean, he is a politician, but also in the best interest of the state that he represents, and uh, quite frankly, again, of the country, right? And and there's another politician, he's a member of Congress that he puts me in mind of Joe Manchin. His name is Representative David McKinley. He's a Republican. He's also from West Virginia. 
David McKinley is one of the most sensible Republicans that you can think of in the United States Congress, in the House of Representatives. He doesn't get a lot of play, but he, too, understands his state. He, too, understands his district, and he makes common sense legislation. No different than what Joe Manchin. And that is how Senator Manchin has been elected and reelected from a state like West Virginia. And that's why they currently don't have a Republican. You have a, they have a, a senior Democratic senator and a junior Republican senator. If Manchin decides to leave, that seat is going to go to a Republican. So he knows exactly what he needs to do to hold on to his seat as Senator of West Virginia, which is why I said it's in his best political interest, right? But it's also in the best interest of the state and the country. Joe Manchin is not this wavering on the fence half-assed Democrat. He is a Democrat that actually has gotten things done, and I think will continue to get things done if Democrats and the more progressive Democrats have the fortitude to continue to work with him. Well, I, I you know, I'd, I'd like to see what, you know, how, how much of a Democrat he is on, on, on important bills, uh, to your point. But all I'm saying is that you brought up poor whites. I, I didn't want to say it, but you said it. So... I think there's a disconnect between what Joe Manchin is trying to do for a state and his political career, as opposed to those poor whites who voted for that other guy against their own self-interest for be because of race rather than anything else, which always goes on with those folks uh, when it comes to race relations in this country. I, I, I firmly believe that. And by the way, you can look it up. I'm sure, Professor, you know um, that, you know, Manchin got some pushback when he went back and forth with that guy. And they supported that guy in the poll show. They were higher um, supporting him over Manchin. So Manchin got pushback. So I understand the political side. But what I'm saying is that those people in that state, some of them, right, some of them that might be in similar situations, that are, are poor or unemployed or stuff that are uh, similar to people that look like us voted against their own self-interest because of the narrative of they're taking our jobs, which is the oldest trick in the book, and, and they buy into it a lot, which, which, which causes a lot of, which goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of this, of, of black economic uh, a power and equality, we, we can't get there if, if we got folks voting against their own self-interest knowing they in the same boat with us. They well, vote just like us in some, some situations. I don't, I don't think we will ever solve the, the dilemma in terms of why, and, and Nixon, uh, this started with the Southern strategy, as we right. know, what Nixon said, we're going to divide the South. And we're going to lose the South, and it perhaps even goes back to LBJ when he signs the civil rights uh, legislation and said we've lost the South forever, the South and, and the rural Midwest. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little fatigued about trying to legislate or figure out why poor whites particularly vote against their self-interest. We already know why. Race, right. power, critical race theory, right, hegemony. I am not in the business of legislating that. But when it comes, or trying to figure that, or understand that, because I already do, but when it comes to a senator like Joe Manchin, who represents a state that is deeply rural, that is deeply poor, and the fact that he's a Democrat, and he has held on to that seat, I think we have to give 
him some credence with regard to his political savviness and also regarding to, to your point, L.A., of critical legislation that he has supported. Again, I can mention going back to at least the 112th Congress of Pete critical pieces of legislation this Democratic centrist senator has supported on behalf of black and brown people, but also on behalf of his state. He is politically savvy enough as a Democrat to hold on to his seat in a state like West Virginia. So let us be very clear here. He is on the side of Democrats. Speaking of side of Democrats, and this is a question that has been crossing my mind, I was wondering your thoughts as a political person and all of that. Um, and I definitely consider myself a Democrat as well, even though I might have some independent views. But do you think that we have put too much of our um, marbles in one bag? Because, you know, even to this day, we are still overwhelmingly Democratic, meaning most of the people that are black, brown, red, or whatever. And of course, that has been a critique, even though there have been some people, you mentioned Nixon earlier, that have done some economic developments. And I was not a necessarily a fan of Nixon, but I will give him credit for the Enterprise Zones, which, of course, Boyd McKissick was part of as well. So I was just wondering if you think that maybe we put too much of our, uh, you know, marbles in that Democratic bag, and maybe we should look at third parties and the Republican Party and other things. And I'm not a fan of Tim Scott. I thought that some of his remarks were not all that great, but he does seem to be somewhat of a, to some degree, a centrist in the Republican Party. But I was just wondering your thoughts about whether we need to have more Tim Scott in the world. Great question. Yeah, I, I've long said that uh, I think black people have uh, put their eggs, so to speak, in, uh, in one basket. But then what's the alternative, the Republican Party? Uh, <laughs> I, I used to be a Republican. Uh, you're, I don't know if you all know that. I, I used to be a very active member of the Republican Party. I worked. I knew that. <laughs> uh, and, but I left, right? right? And I left because of the Republican Party that that we currently see. And so I applaud, right, the the Adam Kissingers, uh, who was a uh, representative from, I believe, Michigan. Illinois. Illinois. Okay, mm-hmm. Illinois. I applaud the the former chairman of the uh, RNC, Michael Steele. I applaud those people for sort of giving their party hell, but they are minority voices. And I was a minority voice crying out in the wilderness and quite frankly got tired of it because I saw the party being overtaken and overrun by white nationalists, except for those who want to hang on, right? Which goes to my larger point of having those independent voices, those those centrist voices in the Republican as well as in the Democratic Party. So I think there is some credence to that. But we also know that the third party system in this country doesn't work, right? And and so it it, it lends itself to this two party system that we currently have, which gets to the heart of your question, Mark, in the sense that I think black people don't need necessarily to put our eggs in either basket of the Republican Party. We don't need to be, we don't need to have allegiance to either party, but we need to have allegiance to our permanent interests. And whatever party is going to depending on the issue, right, is going to be about our permanent interest, well, then that's the party that we need to perhaps vote for or put in office, right? My parents were prime example. Though they voted Democrat 95% of the time of their life, they did vote for some Republicans who they felt, right, would be a good person for that particular role. And so when it comes to voting, we need to look at issues. Yes, we need to look at the people, but we also need to look at the issues. I, even when I was a, 
a, a very active Republican did not vote for the Republican candidate all the time. I looked at issues. And so there were times in which I voted for the Democrat because the Democrat on that specific part or that specific office made sense to the interests and the values that I care about. So black people don't need to put our bag, our eggs in either basket, Democrat or Republican, or Republican Party, but we need one egg in all of our interests. We need permanent interests. And I think that's what it boils down to. And it gets to LA's question earlier about that economic empowerment, not necessarily voting one ticket or one party, but voting our self-interest always across parties, depending on what role, whether that's state, local, or federal, and depending on what office. Yeah. No, and, poli- and, and, and politics is so local. And then, you know, like you said, uh, s- local, state, and federal. But what what Republicans seem to not understand, and I know we got to run, um, yeah. is that, you know, when you look at black people we're conservative by nature we're we're spiritual you know we love god right you know we are law we want law and enforcement law and binding you no know, we want to vote we want neighborhoods and all these different things right that, that republicans conservatives and white folks want so they but they don't want to bring us in the tent on, on, unless it's a uh, tim scott and i think you know i i caution tim scott because I I hope he's not going to be exploited to the point where he's a Michael Steele on outside looking in. You know what ha- happened with him when Russ Limbaugh told him to shut up and sit down and all, all this other stuff. And I, I you know Michael Steele. I'm glad, like you said, he came out and said some things, and he's kind of like you. But even you're stronger in it. Like your voice has been in it. Um, Michael's kind of you know uh, sometimes the, the talking points, unfortunately, but. You know, I, I caution Tim Scott to, to make sure that he doesn't fall down that road. They're pushing him. Mr. Magoo is pushing him out there like, hey, you need to be the negotiator, <laughs> a.k.a. Mitch McConnell, folks. Um, pushing him out there to be the negotiator, but I, I, I just I, I'm very concerned about that. But I just think Republicans, and I was on a conservative show, it's like, you know, we – we want what you want. We don't want crime in our neighborhoods. We want exactly what you want. You just got to go out and, and examine us and, 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 and push our agenda. That's what you said, Professor. It's about our political agenda. It's what we want uh, for, for us in terms of the policies that are going to better us, both economics which I think is really stronger than a lot of different things in terms of if we have the economic power, we can reach the goals that we want and other areas. You know, final thoughts to you, uh, Professor. No, I, I absolutely think you're, you're right. And, and, again, it's not about permanent parties. It's about permanent interest. Um, I, I like him. Uh, uh, I've, I've met with him a couple of times. I think it's part in the right place. Do I agree with everything he said? No, I don't. Uh, but do I think that he cares about the black community? Yes, I do. Do I think that he cares about uh, the economic interests of the black community? I do. Uh, do I think he espouses Republican talking points? Well, absolutely. Again, this is politics. So there's a game that has to be played. And I understand that he has to play the game. I understand that. And I, and I think most people, well, let me say this. I think when it comes to politics, I think we have to sometimes separate the game that is played that or that needs to be played in order to maintain power versus to your earlier point, L.A., of voting 
on some critical pieces of legislation that is better for not just our community, but for the country. Uh, and, and I've seen that within certain politicians, which is gained why I maintain this sort of independent, centrist, moderate uh, people, both in, in the Democratic and Republican Party, that has to be. We, we need that middle uh, because without it, we're going to continue to see polarization on, on both ends. And I may sound like a broken record, and, and I know I have gotten to a lot of uh, heated but yet passionate conversations with my more progressive friends about this, but I think that critical, moderate, centrist voice is needed in both our parties, particularly for those of us who look at issues and not always follow party lines. I uh, appreciate that, and I know that Ellie's probably got some closing remarks as well. I do just have one very quick question that came up with something that a friend of mine said, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, Professor Driscoll, and then I'll have L.A. give his closing remarks as well. But a friend of mine who was, was a party person, they were involved, I think, in the Midwest. They were also involved in the West Coast, like around Vegas and areas like that. They have told me that they felt that some of the squad, some of that uh, leftist kind of politics and everything, had not had enough of their due time. So they had not had enough time to actually learn the business of politics. So as one in politics, do you buy that argument that you have to go through almost like a training system in order to be politically active? Because they're thinking that they are talking too much and they haven't gone through the hoops, for lack of a better term. You know, perhaps, I don't know if that's a generational thing or not. Uh, I'm not necessarily one that thinks they have to go through the, the hoops or be pledged into the process. Uh, I do think that uh, they serve a certain agenda and they represent a certain demographic, and I think they are serving that agenda and that demographic well. Uh, I, I think you, however, you have younger people like uh, Representative Lauren Underwood from Illinois, who is very young and is not a member of the squad, but is also equally progressive in, in her own way. I, I think, however, it just depends on the demographics to who you were, who elected you, and, and what your agenda, both political and personal, is. And, Doc, I, I, Professor, appreciate you 669-290-130, the number to get in touch with us more. On the Bachelor's Radio Show, on the Bachelor Radio Network, WCOM and Chapel Hill, IBM TV, uh, Big Mind Entertainment. You can see the show there. And, of course, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. <laughs>
with me. Black on black bandanas, I say it's champagne. I did the damn thing. Dirty Diana, singing and dancing all in the rain. with us. Uh, don't forget, if you missed any part of the broadcast, you go to our website, uh, the Bass News Radio Network.com, Bachelor with a T, Network.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Pad Nation, on uh, Nation, the number two Twitter. And you can watch the show on IBM TV, live, and of course, on Big um, uh, Entertainment, uh, on Amazon TV, Roku and or um, Fire Stick. You download the Big Mind Entertainment app and you can actually watch the show on Amazon. A quick, quick question before I go to my next guest, Gerald Hoover. Uh, Mike in Minneapolis, uh, what's on mind, sir? Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I could just show sure. that it's, a, it's interesting how Prior to the election, we had a previous administration that the media conducted themselves in a certain way and were on the attack and constantly trying to, you know, hold people in power accountable and point out certain things, and some of their points were valid. But it's amazing how now with the new administration, all of a sudden the media has changed its entire mode into defense mode, into trying to promote and trying to cover things and ignoring the very same things that were critical of the previous administration, as an example with the border. The fact that they brought up the fact that children were being detained and separated and, and the conditions at the border and under Trump, which were wrong, and it was good that they brought that up, but it's interesting how now when the situation is way worse, you got more children detained in cases. you got all these people literally held in pens, laying on the ground with aluminum sheets that cover themselves with, and the media is just totally silent about it. They're not saying a word. And it just shows the unbelievable double standard. It, it, it's mind-blowing to see how much it could change. You know, it's just a matter of yeah. months. Mike, you, you, you spot on, man. And listen, I, I said um, about this administration, in a lot of ways it will probably be worse than the Obama administration because of COVID, because he's following this dude, this devil, um, uh, you know, that was for him, um, and that the media gave that guy a pass, you know, you all you have to do is look at All Lives Matter, which is a slogan, because really slaughtered. I'm assuming, um, I'm assuming you're African American, um, that we're getting slaughtered 
on the streets of wherever, Minneapolis or Durham or wherever, um, that all lives can't matter until the ones that look like us are going to be respective. Captain Obvious is that, you know, of course all lives matter. If you're a human being and you believe in humanity, of course all lives matter. But this slogan that's put out there that um, it's no surprise. Like, no surprise that they're going after this this president, who I don't completely, you know, agree with everything. But I'm not surprised that they gave a pass to the racist, bigot, um, narcissist, sexist before him, and now they're trying to create this sort of narrative with President Biden and what he's trying to accomplish. Because at the end of the day, Mike, really, um, it, you know, he's trying to do something. Again, whether the method is what you like or not, the, the policy and his agenda was before he became president was to help black and brown people, not in just in terms of police brutality, incarceration, things of like that, but jobs and, and housing and everything else. Did we lose Mike? Oh, I'm here. Okay. Now, first, okay. Because well, you brought up a couple points there. You talked about all lives matter, and obviously you represent Black Lives Matter. Now, there's certain things you got to look at from big picture point of view when you bring that up. So the Democrat Party, in the way it is, it's dependent on the Black vote. Right? If the Black vote doesn't turn out, they're going to lose. Like we saw in 16, there was a low turnout amongst Black voters, and they just basically went to tank. That's what they lost from in 16. And so the Democrat Party was trying to present itself as if it's the advocate for African Americans, the black people, and support on the black agenda. In reality, they've actually done very little. They have very little tangible, substantive policies you can point to to say they actually justify why we're even voting for them in the first place. They have very little. So what I find what they like to do is every time an election time comes around, they have to find a way to get black people hyped up and emotional and then use that to convince them to go vote for them. You know what I'm saying? Right. And in my and opinion, is, they're using police brutality, not because they care about the black flight and actually want to better black people. It's just it's a way to get black people to actually go out and vote for Democrats who otherwise haven't really done anything for them. Because I noticed that all during that whole BLM thing that kicked off last spring, everything was geared ultimately towards going out and vote. If you noticed it, everything was at the end of the day, it came down to, oh, we need to go vote. So they were trying to funnel all that energy into voting, which proved to me what that agenda was ultimately about. And then on top of that, we could get into discussion of where all the money that was donated to Black Lives Matter went. We find out a lot of it went to Democratic organizations and Democratic, you know, political figures that were running for, for office at the time. And so to me, that's why I don't want to associate with that. I look at that as nothing more than a political tool that they could take advantage of us. And like Malcolm X said, the white liberal and the white conservative both have all different different ways of achieving similar goals when it comes to black people. So I'm not well, willing to be championing the left and all that and buying into this nonsense that they're looking out for us, when in my opinion, they've allowed other groups, i.e. Mexicans and the LGBT and women, white women in particular, to hijack a civil rights movement that was specifically targeted for black people because black people had a unique situation and other groups 
have now come in and taken advantage and are reaping the benefits that were not there and aren't meant for them. So well, I'm not but, playing that game. And I, and I get you, which is why I said, which is why I said, that I don't agree with everything that this administration has said, first of all. Second of all, and uh, all lives matter, say what you want, is a slogan. Black lives do matter might be a slogan, and you may not agree with it, but black lives do matter because we're the ones getting knocked upside the head and killed on the street by bad actors in law enforcement agencies. It doesn't make it all of them, but it makes it the reality. So I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. And, and, and to your point, Democrats and black people like North Carolina – and I'm in North Carolina, people are going to be mad at me, um, and basketball. They think that it's birthright. That because Jordan played, everybody was born in Brooklyn, New York. That basketball is the, the place. Of course, it started in Kansas. It's the same thing with North with Democrats and black people. We should not be putting all our eggs on basketball because it's all about, it's not about Democrats because, um, like, prosecutors and defense attorneys and even judges sit down and have lunch together. Democrats and Republicans are doing the same thing. I won't get into the European thing and, and what they look like, um, but I will say that, you know, at the end of the day, it's about policy. Policy is about your agenda. What your family, what your community agenda is. It's not about Democratic Republicans. Which is why I had a problem with Hillary Clinton. Not a big fan. Everybody knows if you listen to this show. Not a big fan. And Barack Obama, his his, his drug policy against um, countries of color. So on this program, you might we might caucus a certain way, but at the end of the day, I get it. What I'm saying to you, though, Mike, in Minneapolis, of course, the the the, the place of George Floyd, is that. Um, you could be the world's tallest midget. Um, I was on a, a conservative program before. They said, well, you know, uh, Donald Trump is, you know, got more votes, black votes, and this and that. That's the world's tallest midget. What does that mean? What does that mean? That just means he got more votes. Does that mean that he believes in fraud? that means that he won't stop grabbing women by the private parts? Does that he will shoot. He won't shoot people on Fifth Avenue. Does that mean he won't use all his money? Does that mean he wants Five to be uh, executed, not not to be executed? I mean, we have to, to keep things in perspective. And all that is that um, you can be against Black Lives Matter, and that's fine. But Black Lives Matter ain't working either. That ain't working for me either. So. You know, optics, and it's all in the policy. What is policy? What do you believe? I don't care for Joe Manchin more than Mitch uh, McConnell, a.k.a. Mr. McGoo, I call him. He looks just like Mr. McGoo, in my opinion. So, I mean, it is what it is. And we have to be conscious enough. We have to be um, savvy enough and uh, to, to, to understand it. And, and nothing wrong way. There's nothing wrong, Mike. Um, make it about this. 
because you can't change anything about the voting anyway. Anyway. So, you know, yeah, that might have been their agenda. I'm not excusing whatever either way. But if the agenda is to get people out to vote, because, again, if I vote, I want my candidate to win because the candidate, he or she, believes in what I believe in, not to have to vote. So I'm going to leave it at that. Mike, you hang the line if you want. Uh, we'll switch gears before we get out of here because uh, um, well, we lost our guest. So what I'm going to do, and I do apologize, we'll get back on the line another time. I'm back to you, Mike, and, and I hope you understand um, what I'm is that I get what you're saying about the whole Black Lives Matter and all that. I'm not a fan of any of it. I'm an independent dude, independent thinking person. I don't give a damn about either side. As long as their their side is going to fit into my agenda and my kids' agenda and my family's agenda. So I don't like, you know, I pick and choose a bunch of stuff on both sides. Um, My point is that um, we have to be conscious we can't slide one way or the other. Now, you know, Republicans typically, historically, um, post-Lincoln have not been um, in favor in terms of policies of what we want. However, again, as I mentioned Barack Obama, as I mentioned Mr., you know, President Biden and, and so on and so forth, it's really about the policies. It really now, I, would, I will definitely tell you I would have never voted for – I would have never voted for the devil before him. So we have to add, at some point, because of the way this crazy system is, you're going to take the demon or you're going to take the devil or you're going to stay home. And if you come home, right. then, that's, then that's what's That's a great point that you mentioned, that because, because the demonization of Trump, to me, is not legitimate. And why I say that is this. The media gets to dictate – Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? So if the media wanted to, for example, they got a lot of stuff on Biden they could bring up. They got stuff on Obama. They got stuff on Bush. They got stuff on all these guys. They all got dirt. But it's selective based on who you are, who you're connected to, who's got money in your pockets, and who doesn't. When it comes to Trump, they made the general public think, oh, Trump's a bad guy, this and that. Trump ain't done nothing different than anything adversity policies have done. They're all exactly the same. You talking about Trump grabbing women by the pussy? Biden is out there was was doing all kinds of stuff to women, including underage girls, and it's on video. The issue with Trump was he wasn't in the club. That's the problem. See, their their objection at Trump isn't really about who he is or his policies. No, they don't really care about that. That's where, show, where that's you from? You you're from Minnesota? Yeah, I'm from Minnesota. Okay, so. I- from Connecticut, so I know Trump. So I, I'll, I'll categorically disagree with you. We knew Trump. We know that he's a racist. So you can't take oh, your yeah, yeah, what I'm saying. Don't, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. The same. Don't do that though, because he is a racist. No, if, if, if you want to talk, if you want to bring up racism, I could bring up the fact that Joe Biden was close okay, to Okay, but okay, with, but the, what, what, what race are you, Mike? What race are you? What race are you? I'm black. Ethnic. Okay, so I'm black, you black, they white, but here's my point. 
My point is, you black, I'm black. They white. So what's your point? You know what they're going to do. The other side, you bring that up, well, a bunch of white folks. No, no, no. You're misinterpreting No, but you bring up Biden, and I'm telling you, Biden, it don't matter. No, 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 you're missing the point, brother. I'm talking about the reason the media and the politicians in D.C. went at Trump the way they did. Now, they make it seem like to you and I, their objection is because of who he is as a person, because of his history, because of his demeanor or his policies. I'm telling you, they could care less about that. That's not their real objection. They put that out there for the general public. Their objection to Trump is he's not in part of the club. He was an outsider who came in and usurped the system and just jumped to the front of the line. That's their issue. Because the very same things that they're, that they're complaining about Trump, all that same stuff applies to Biden. Right. But the point is, I don't really give a damn about them. I, my, point is, my point is this. Um, it it, it got to be an individual basis. It's all about the policies. I could care less about the main... The mainstream media is doing what I'm doing what I'm doing. So I'm agreeing with you right. on that. I, I the, mainstream the mainstream is, media is the one that right. takes the general public opinion. So the, right. the, the mainstream media decided we need to make the general public not like Trump. And so by doing that, we're going to then bring up certain things about him that otherwise won't. For example, you, let's, talk, let's talk about the pussy-grabbing tape. You notice that NBC, that was, a, that was an undercover tape NBC had from years ago, that's from like 2011 or something like that, they held on to that until, what, September of 2016, right before the election? Like right around the end of September? That's when they brought it out. They could have put it out anytime they wanted to. They selectively chose to put it out when they did. Why? Because they wanted to use it for a political reason. The reason being, Trump, who's not part of the establishment, whether Republican or Democrat, as an outsider, he got to a point he wasn't supposed to get to. He wasn't even supposed to win the Republican nomination. But because he's a popular celebrity and he had name recognition, he was able to transcend the system the way most politicians can. Because the rest of these politicians, they got to go through the grinder. They got to shake certain hands. They got to get certain money. They got to kiss certain butt. They got to do certain things. They have special interest groups that back them up and prop them up. There's a whole system in D.C. And so this guy coming so in from the outside... Right, that's so you're beef. You get what I'm saying? You're, so for us, you're, you're, right. from our you're perspective, beef. that's not that, that's not. It, it's not. So when you bring those mm-hmm. things up to me, like when you talk but about, let me let me let me share something with you for because coming through you, my you chat. Do know, you do know that. Hold on. Hold on. I'm gonna put you on mute. Well, I'm gonna put you on. I'm gonna put you on mute. One second, Mike. Let me share with you. I'm gonna have to run, but let me share the reason why we have to be careful. I don't. I'm not the mainstream. You don't get talking points on this damn show. So that we we know if you listen to the show, that's not gonna happen. Let me share something with you from uh, uh, someone probably um, in Minnesota, right? And this person, which I won't say their name or screen names, George Floyd. I'm not commemorating that criminal. Now the man was his knee, the, the cop which didn't get real time, in my opinion, put his knee on this person's, uh, on George Floyd's neck. They go on to say 4,845 shot by the black. Um, and I don't know what 371 means. 
It's Memorial Day, I guess, May 23rd through the 25th, uh, including seven five shootings, murder in Chicago, no white police shootings, and they go on to talk about. And this is my point. We have to be very careful. It's okay to put that information out there about the media and what they're doing wrong. But then you have bigots in that chat room that don't want to even acknowledge human life that was taken um, for no reason other than the brass and the, the, the racism that went into uh, this particular uh, tragedy, this murder. Um, and by the way, if you live in, you're in uh, this whole black and black crime thing, uh, people can spend all the time. Blacks kill black without. But if it's a Chinese neighborhood and it's all predominantly Chinese, who's the crimes? Who's going to kill each other? Chinese on Chinese. White folks in white neighborhoods will commit crimes predominantly white. It, it, it's just. It's just a way for you talking about media um, to portray stuff with that. You know, for them, for these, these kids who are cowards who come in my chat room and, and give false names and fake screen names because they're cowards. And if you're, if you're real, you would call in. You would call in and say what you really want. But ones who are bits, ones who are cowards, do those things. I need to take a break, switch gears, and I'm going to come back to this. Those hang on the line, you can. Uh, we need to take a breather, talk about something light, and we're going to come back to this topic on the Bass News Radio Show on WCLM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm Chief Big Miner and the Bachelor News Radio Network. Sally Beauty's new all-in-one hair color kits make it easy to color your hair at home. Get everything you need to color for beautifully radiant results. Loved by professionals, open to everyone. Sally Beauty. Blog Talk Radio. To the show, I tell you, boy, oh boy, it's tough being me sometimes. And I will bite my tongue, everybody. Didn't know what they did. um, I'm gonna let people be who they are. Um, you know, my Angelo said, if you know, people show you who they are, I'm paraphrasing, then you believe them. And so. I'm going to leave it at that, you know. And switch gears, and we're going to come back to our topic before we get out of here. So stay on the line, 469 the number to get in touch. 
let's press one and get online. But I, I do want to um, touch base with my good friend on the line. Of course, he is of the media, and uh, he is the play-by-play voice of uh, the UMass local basketball. He is the nationalist. And Nick, always a pleasure to have you on, friend. Hope all is well with you, sir. I'm good, LA. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm, I'm hanging in there, my friend. Um, I want to turn um, on the NBA specifically. Before we get to the games, what what do you make of the rush of superstar injuries that's been taking place in seemingly every series? I mean, even in the conference finals, we'll, we'll get to Phoenix the Clippers. You know, you had the you had Chris Paul, and Kawhi never got out to play. Of course, uh, you know, uh, you look at the Milwaukee, you look at Atlanta. It's just it, it does take away. I don't know what the ratings been, but does it take away from the game when these these folks are not on the, on the court? Did we lose? Nick, are you there? I'm here. Okay, did you hear me? I'm here, yeah. Did you hear me? Yeah, it's it's uh it's a bad connection. Let me let me try calling you back. Okay. Real quick. All right. So we'll get Nick Nick and Asses back on online. Um as I mentioned, we'll get back to our conversation on the line. I know uh, a bunch of folks are in line and Phil and uh, all over the place where we're, we're the folks in the line that uh, we'll get uh, back to our conversation and uh, as I mentioned you know uh, people are people that say crazy things you just have to roll the, the punches. Nick is this better for you sir it seems to be for now yeah let's, let's try okay let, let's see if we can roll with that I, I mentioned Away from the playoffs with the rash of superstars that have been out thus far in the playoffs. Yeah, and LeBron James made a great point. You know, you 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 shorten the uh, the off season, which is what we saw. Um, you know, you're putting more strenuous, putting more strain on on the players, or putting more strain on bodies. Uh, as we know, last season, due to the lockdown, we didn't end the finals until late October, which is usually when training camp is coming around. So, you know, the, the, the NBA wanted the season back on the air in time for the Christmas holiday. So it was all hands on deck. You know, in, in the Lakers' case, what, about eight or nine weeks off, and that's it. So the whole league was was rushed into get, getting back into you know getting back into game shape, getting getting back into the swing of things very quickly. And uh, and to LeBron's point, that that may or may not have you know come to reap its ugly head come playoff time. You know, bodies are, are being pushed to the max and and are not holding up. Um, you know, you got guys out there who are knowingly playing injured, knowingly. You know, running the risk of of making their their injuries worse, um, 
you know, that may or may not be the case with Embiid. You know, I think the jury's still out there playing on a bum knee, playing on a torn, uh, you know, a torn ligament that's never good. So, you know, the, the offseason was shortened. Um, players were asked to do more in a shorter amount of time, and it's taken its toll on a lot of players' bodies. It's interesting to see if that is the real real reason. You know, I, I, we see people like Derrick Rose that put a lot of strength on his lower part of his body and, and had numerous injuries, other guys like that from the waist down. So I don't know. I mean, it, it could that um, I'm some of the, the the thought that you know it, it might be conditioning. I, I don't know. We you know especially some of the usual suspects like Embiid, who seems to get all the time uh, as a Sixer fan. It's just really annoying. Um, but that right. that seems to seems to be the case. Atlanta and Milwaukee. I, I don't. Really you call that series, but interesting enough, like I said, I'm, I haven't really looked at it at the time of this broadcast. The season is kind of gone back to Milwaukee. Trey, um, I, I guess it's probable. Um, Giannis is doubtful. How do you look at this series so far? Because Atlanta seems to be here, even in some cases, people say two years away from being, you know, an elite team adding some more players and things of that nature. Milwaukee trying to get over the hump. They already made it to the final. Now they're trying to get to the actual finals. Joining Phoenix for the you know, first time, both teams in, in forever in a day. Um, but what do you look at the series so far? I think Trey Young has been doing reminds me a lot of, of Reggie Miller in 94. Um, not not just with the antics, not just with him embracing the villain role, which he has done, um, but just the way he's been killing teams just from, you know, insane deep. Uh, you know, M- Miller used to, he used to rely on getting open off the screen. You know, that was his big thing. Run from one side of the floor to the other. You know, make make the guy chasing him run through two picks catch it and turn in one motion and throw it up. And he seemed to make magic with that, particularly in that 94 run. Remember, that, that Pacer team wasn't very talented on paper. Miller was by far and away their best player. And he torched teams throughout the playoffs and almost got them into the finals, uh, brought the Knicks to seven games. Game five was the, uh, the infamous game where he was talking trash to Spike Lee. Right. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's just this whole playoff run has has kind of reminded me of that. Um, you know, throw in the, the shimmy shake, the shoulder shake, whatever you want to call it. You know, he, he really started getting into it with the Nick fans in round one. Um, that storyline has been reminiscent of of what we saw from Miller. Will it continue? I don't know because the Bucks, I think, with or without Giannis, are still the better team on paper. I mean, you got two Olympians on that team, two guys that are going to be competing in Tokyo in a couple of months, um, not named Giannis, obviously, and Middleton, and their point guard at Galson. So, you know, they are, are – whatever you slice it, right, they, they should have um, – they should be the better team on paper. With Giannis, it should have been Bucks in, in five or six, to be honest with you. 
Um, so, so the fact that the Hawks now can steal one on the road without the other team's best player on the floor and be in a position potentially to close it out at home in game six, I think surprised everybody. Certainly surprised the, uh, the odds makers in Vegas. The Bucks were four and a half, um, four and a half to one was the odds at the beginning of the series, which is pretty high. Um, so, Nick, we lost Nick again. Um, we will certainly try to get him back on on the line. Six four six nine nine zero one three zero. The number to get in touch with us. Um, back, Nick, uh, lost you back on the line. You were. Uh, and the odds makers, I'm not a big fan of the Bucks, but I understand why the odds makers, like I said, most people have had Bucks, you know, a year or two away from really making a deep run. So here they are in the conference finals, uh, a skill, like you said, away on the road, and then, you know, maybe closing it out at home. Yeah, and I think that surprised pretty much everybody. Um, you know, that's been following this thing. Uh, it, it's not over for the Bucks either. You know, they made adjustments defensively in games two and three that helped them out on the perimeter. So if, if they can find a way to do that tonight and, and have – So we'll go back to um... – Nick asked us at uh, some point. I want to go to Orlando. He's with KRSB Radio in Philly. Uh, long time no hear, my friend. Definitely a long time. Hopefully you and everyone else is going well. Yes, sir. Um, man, so, I, you know, I've been, you know Orlando, I've been for Ben Simmons to be gone for a while and, and it's not all on him Not make no mistake about it I will never ever say that Ben Simmons is the reason why Philly lost yet again in the year that I thought um, they win especially Brooklyn going down um, I thought the, the, the Brooklyn team would be there just out in my opinion Um but, you know, said before the start of the year, and, and you know, he, 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 he's just not improving, man. I don't, maybe sometimes a talent like that needs to change his quivers. I questioned some of his moves down the stretch in some of those, those games. Um, you know, he brought up game seven, Wolves. Outside of he was with the Celtics, uh, Ben Simmons with his shot selection. There's some blame all around, but I really think that it's time for the Sixers and Ben Simmons to part ways. Yeah, I, I'm I'm torn because I only let Ben go if I can get one of a handful of players. Obviously. Is Portland wants Damian Lillard, 
I part ways with Ben happily. I'll drive him myself. Um, at least in Salt Lake City, he can get to Portland on his own from there. Um, uh, maybe maybe we go for Bradley Beal. Um, hey, you pilot? You are you a pilot or Why am out there, man? <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, young man had issues, and 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 it shows. Um, I don't. I don't make Ben my number one scapegoat for this series. Uh, even in spite of that, I thought Doc coached a horrible series. Yeah. Um, luckily, luckily for me, I was somewhere where it didn't matter um, that he coached so badly because outside was just pure heaven. So I got to enjoy that. But had Brett Brown lost three games at home, and this is the team with the best home record over the last four years, out of the entire NBA. Had he lost three games at home, they'd be walking him out the door. So I question Doc Rivers. Um, he has to show and prove. Uh, ben Simmons allowed the game to get into his head, um, and he didn't. I didn't need him to hit foul shots. I didn't need him to shoot a jump shot. All I needed him to do was to be aggressive because his lack of aggression allowed Clint Capella, allowed Gallinari, allowed Bogdanovich, and allowed the other young kid that they had that comes off of the bench, the backup five, to stay in the game. If you, you can play all you want to, if I'm drawing fouls on you, I'm doing part of my job, and he didn't do that. And unfortunately for the Sixers, you know, Joe went down in Washington again, um, and that's the second time that he had an injury in Washington, uh, and he didn't. He just didn't have his win. He didn't have his win. And in Game Seven, Doc Rivers coached a horrible game. Um, the team wasn't loose, and they tried to do too much as opposed to what they've been doing all year long. So, um, will Ben Simmons be here in Philadelphia? I'd say sixty forty yes, because uh, Daryl Daryl Morey is not going to get rid of him. Um, for nothing. We, we can't allow that to happen. I know it's an emotional piece. And the, man, the poor man's getting lit up all across America, and especially here in Philadelphia. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. like I said, you know, just improving your game. He lacks confidence. That's why I said it's not necessarily just bad the kid. More so, maybe he just needs to change the city. Maybe he just can't. Philly's a tough town. You know it. You gotta have you gotta have a a thick skin and you gotta be able to ball. Um, you gotta be able to handle it and maybe speed the kind of advance and and do those things from there. So what do you see? I, I don't know all the, the context. If, if, I know you want to keep Tobias. I don't know what the context looks like and what the bit looks like. But what what do they look like moving forward next year? Well, going forward next year, contrary to what most people are saying, they're in, they're in decent shape. Um, whether Dwight Howard comes back, I'm not sure. Um, if we can get him back at the money that, that you paid this year, I'd walk him back. Um, I, I'd really look at them to go get someone like a Bobby Portis. Um, there's talks about Kyle Lowry coming back home. Uh, as a potential sign, 
the Knicks will try to go after him as well, so he'll be a hot commodity. Miami wants him as well also. Um, I, In my heart of hearts, and this is just only me speaking for me, not for the Philadelphia 76ers or the Philadelphia fans, I believe that Daryl Morey is going to try to trade Tobias Harris. Wow. And he'll keep he'll keep Ben and Joe together, but he'll trade Tobias um, and bring something in. What they were missing, they didn't get the productivity that they thought from George Hill. George Hill was a non-factor in that last playoff series. So um, kind of wait and see. But I, I believe Tobias goes. And I think Tobias goes to maybe a Cleveland, something like that, where you see a move. Well, they better get some support to Tobias. I don't like that. He's a solid player. He's going to give you. He's a solid player, but he's a tradable commodity. But he's making the max amount of money, so they they need. They're going to make a serious trade, but I don't believe. And again, this is only me saying that. I don't believe that it will be Ben Simmons um, that will depart. If anyone, it'll be Tobias Harris that will depart. I don't think you'll see Ben Simmons next year for the 2021-22 season be the starting point guard. I believe the Sixers will go out and get a veteran point guard. Well, they need to do something. Maybe that takes the pressure off them playing off the ball a little bit and uh, having less, um, you know, priority in, in his hands. Let me ask you about the, the remaining series we'll talk with um, about Milwaukee Atlanta. Let's be a year or so ahead of the game right now, the way Trey is playing and house money. I'm not, I never was, I told you this before about I'm not a big fan of Milwaukee. And, you know, I know Giannis is, he always puts up big numbers, but the core of the game. Uh, Middleton's been doing a lot better than I expected him to, especially game three. Um, but I, I just don't believe in him, and I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of pulls this thing off. Yeah, I mean, listen, Nate McMillan has brought an edge to the Atlanta team, so they believe right now. Um, I don't think they're as good as they are. <clears throat> but they've they've done what they supposed they've done what they're supposed to do um, as being the lowest seeded team uh, left in the playoffs. They're punching Milwaukee in the face. Like the Sixers, I believe Budenholzer is the biggest obstacle for the Bucks. Um, I don't believe that he's a good coach. Uh, right. You got Drew Holiday. You know you 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 have some pieces there for Milwaukee, but overall. The, the Greek freak is nothing but, you know, an advanced version of Ben Simmons. Honestly, if we want to be serious, like if, if Ben were to shoot, they're the same thing. He shoots poorly from the foul line, and he's not able to really get his in the playoffs. The only thing right. that he does that I really, really enjoy is he goes to the whole heart. That's the only thing that he does that Ben Simmons doesn't do. And he'll pull up for an occasional three, but – you know he'll miss most of them. So and even and even I, with the other Lando, he he is he's good in transition. That's his power. Like you said, going on the break, you can't stop him. He's like a train. But in half court, right. if you defend him the right way, he 
he, he struggles. Yeah. Listen, the NBA, and I'll laugh and joke, and we've talked about this over the years, in that secret room uh, of marketing for the NBA, they don't want Milwaukee in in championship. They want the mystique of Trey Young, and they want Atlanta in the playoffs. There, right. There's no benefit, especially having Phoenix there. Um, they need Atlanta um, with that market. Milwaukee's a nice city, uh, and it's summertime in Milwaukee, but you rather have the story of the Atlanta Hawks, uh, especially since they knocked off the Knicks and the Sixers and to knock off the Bucks. That's the story. Milwaukee, eh, eh, they beat Brooklyn. Hats off to them. But Brooklyn wasn't Brooklyn because they weren't healthy. And that was part of the topic that you and Nick had spoke about, you know, with the amount of so-called superstar players going down this season in the shortened season. So if I'm the NBA, I, I believe they want the Hawks in the championship. And then you have a Phoenix, uh, Atlanta. And even if, even if Atlanta doesn't do well, you can always say, you know, um, you know, David didn't lose to Goliath, but he he finally lost to his father. In in a sense, the the, the up and coming Hawks. And you have you have the storyline of you know the the young Trey Young going against the old veteran and finally getting to the final. And correct. Correct. Right. So then you it's more storyline story there. It's more storyline. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And I exactly. would say, you know, when you look at the, the, the Western Conference, um, well, overall, in, in general, I asked you this question, I asked you this final question. You know, did it hurt the NBA? I haven't seen the numbers, but did it hurt the NBA to have so many superstar players? It hurt playoffs, Embiid, you know, Giannis, Trayon, Chris Paul, Kawhi Leonard, all these guys getting all these, these uh, playoffs. Did, did you think that took away a lot from the, the energy and the numbers of the NBA playoffs this year? I thought the NBA set themselves up because everyone was on that hype of Brooklyn. Brooklyn, 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 Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, right. Brooklyn. Right? And, and so... Brooklyn was hurt. They Brooklyn has been hurt. They've they've only played I want to say less than ten games together as a group, but they hyped Brooklyn so much. So when Brooklyn didn't do well, and then of course it wasn't the fact of LeBron James not being healthy. It was Anthony Davis. Right. Um. We we talked about this beginning of last year, and and even I mean beginning of this year. Excuse me. LeBron will have the task this year of having to go on the road. And you're in a condensed season and traveling. So I'm not playing Utah in in a bubble in Orlando where we play on one of three or four courts. I have to go to Utah after playing the Clippers or playing the Suns or, or, or actually Sacramento. Utah your body doesn't feel well because of the altitude. And from there, where will you go? You normally go to Denver, which is even more altitude. He's 37 years old. Father Time hasn't lost to anyone. I mean, I don't know anyone that has beaten Father Time. 
Um, so I, I, I thought the NBA set themselves up because the last three and a half weeks of the season, there were meaningless games, meaningless games. And it, it came back to hurt them. It really came back to hurt them because they didn't have anyone. So they have Phoenix and they have the Chris Paul, um, and it was nice to see him win. But in all honesty, Chris, Chris, Chris Paul has been a failure thus far as far as getting to a championship. He's never done it. He's never gotten past the second round. Well, that's the more reason why well, I'm happy to see him get there because um, he's a good guy. And, you know, they have overhyped the guy because he's a Players Association guy, leader for the last decade, you know, the State right. Farm commercials and all that. But, I mean, I'm just happy for him. You know, and you like to see guys, they've been in the league, what, 15 years or whatever it's been. And, um, right. You get there finally. I think it's a good storyline. Let's see what Phoenix does with it. And, you know, they haven't been there since our, our Charles Barkley got in there in 93. So, um, right, right. It's been 30 plus years. Yeah, almost. Right. What, one last question for you. What do you think is going sure. to come from the NCAA with the temporary uh, compensation of student athletes in terms of the image and like and all that? What do you? How do you think that's going to play out? Mm, I, I, I'm more of a wait and see right now. Um, the NCAA has to find a way to make this uh, lucrative on their behalf. Um, I, I'm more of a wait and see with that one. Really wait and see. Um, I, I like the fact that these players are able to gain something financially. Uh, behest. Um I know you probably mentioned it, but you know everyone should pay homage to Ed O'Bannon because if it wasn't for Ed O'Bannon, seeing that his his image was being utilized by a game and he was receiving no compensation and deciding to take this to court, um, no one would be reaping the benefits of this. So hats off to him. Yeah, big up, Sam. It comes to fruition years later. Yeah, we mentioned that earlier in the podcast that, um, you know, I'm sure he's like, well, okay, it's, it's really looking like it's a grind. It's coming in um, increments, but it seems like it might be going on in the direction it needs to go. Uh, Orlando, my friend, I'll talk with you off air, man. Thanks, man. Uh, be careful in your yes, travel, sir. All right, take care, man. Bye-bye. All right. He's, of course, he's a play-by-play voice, KRS, V-Radio in Philadelphia, big Sixer fan like I am, on the Bass News Radio Show, the Bass News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, IBM TV, Big Mind Entertainment. If you want to watch the show live, you can go to IBM TV, look up the Bass News Radio Show, or on Big Mind Entertainment, download the Big Mind Entertainment app, on uh, Fire Stick or Roku, and you'll see my mug there on on the, the network, and you can watch the rebroadcast of the shows. Follow us on Facebook, Pat Nation, Pat Nation 2, that's the number two at Twitter, and of course, uh, check out the rebroadcast at the Bachelor's News. 
Never, never. 
Somebody touch me and do what I've been waiting for It's like his hands and my body been friends before Ooh, Every other man next to him is so mundane In a world of cocaine, he's like fine champagne And he's also odd and so unique Everything about this man is made especially for me, yeah. He's magic, magic, magic. Yeah. He's magic, magic, magic. Hey, the way he touches me is so spiritually, so
you bring peace to my world, I would do anything, you're my love, you are my girl, I, I can see what your heart has been asking, do you believe this is love everlasting, then I'll and I'll marry you, and I promise to love, alright baby, hey girl, I promise you, yes I do, yeah, I promise to keep you girl, promise to have and hold you, see I'll never leave you darling, and I promise to love you girl, see your love is a good thing, and girl I need you every day, it's true, baby, 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 I cherish you, yes I do girl, you're the baddest woman I've ever known, the sweetest thing I've ever had, yes you are, and I want to thank you baby, for loving me and changing me and saving me, see I was lost, I was lonely, but you came in and turned it all around girl, you light up my life, yes you do, you're the song of my heart, the joy of my soul, and I'm gonna love you girl, I am, I'm gonna be good to you darling, I will, let the Lord shine his light on our love, as we move on down the road together girl, baby, 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 can I love you all the days of my life, hey girl, I treasure you, yes I do, Can you hear me calling out your name? Can I give you all the things that you need? 